On the record. On News Talk. A very good morning to you. It is two minutes past 11 on Sunday, the 13th of January. Where does the year go already? This is On the Record on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Gavin Riley, with you for the next two hours until one o'clock this afternoon. If you want to get in touch with the programme, you can send us a text. That's 53106. That will cost you 30 cents. We are also on Twitter at News Talk FM or I am at Gav Riley. Now, a really busy show on the way. We'll start by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel, Gronini A, who is a reporter with the journal.ie. Good morning, Gronini. Uh, Richie Oakley is the editor of the Times Ireland edition. Good morning to you, Richie. Morning. And Bernard Harbour is the director of communications with the Forza Trade Union. Good morning to you, Bernard. Hello there. Uh, you're all very welcome <laughs> along. Thank you for coming in this morning on a Sunday morning. Uh, let's take a quick look at some of the headlines on the, some of the Sunday newspapers today. The Sunday Independent. Secret codes reveal smugglers 100 million euro cab breakthrough on ledgers found stashed in a hot press, writes Maeve Sheehan. A secret coded ledger concealed in a hot press has revealed how one of Ireland's biggest cross-border crime gangs turned over a staggering 100 million million euro in seven years. The ledger seized two years ago during a raid by the Criminal Assets Bureau was only recently decoded by analysts who believe the encrypted entries represent thousands of cash transactions. Informed sources say the total value of the transactions was 100 million euro over seven years. Also above the fold in the Sunday Independent today, living costs now at Celtic Tiger levels. It says the cost of living has returned to Celtic Tiger levels despite households seeing only marginal income gains in the last 10 years. Probably not very much news there to anyone who's been living in the real world for the last 10 years. Uh, The Sunday Times revealed plot to seize control from British PM. This is Tim Shipman, the political editor of the London edition, who says that Theresa May has been warned that her government will lose its ability to govern after Downing Street uncovered a plot by senior MPs to seize control control of Brexit negotiations and sideline the UK Prime Minister. Uh, Beneath that, Bertie Hearn saying the UK must uh, postpone Brexit. Uh, And over the left-hand side, the Master of the High Court has been warned against damaging property in the forecourts after he broke three window panes in his courtroom with a hammer. Edmund Honahan, who was responsible for hearing High Court applications for summary judgments, said he smashed the internal windows in order to dispel a fug in the stuffy courtroom that was making him ill. Uh, the Sunday Business Post, uh, on slightly more serious notes, Fianna Fáil attacks government and claims the country is not prepared for a no-deal Brexit. Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin has warned the government to stop the dangerous talk about its ability to cope with a hard Brexit. Uh, this is from Michael Brennan, the political editor, who says that in a sign of the tensions in the recently renewed confidence and supply agreement, he criticised the delays in preparing the country's ports and airports for a no-deal Brexit with just 11 weeks to go. Uh, Michael Brennan reports in that article uh, that some of the uh, plans that were announced before Christmas to expand uh, customs capabilities at Dublin uh, Airport and Shannon Airport and some of the other seaports as well haven't in fact gotten underway with Brexit now just about 10 weeks to go. Uh, the Sunday World Bomber in UK arrest. It says that the uh, the top target of Magarda Siakana, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh, was arrested in Birmingham yesterday morning after a massive four-year investigation into his drug empire. Uh, and the Mail on Sunday leads with a story that I imagine has quite a lot of people exercised. Fury as Leo leaves his unclean women out. Unclean is in single inverted commas there. Uh, This is by John Lee, the political editor, who says Leo Varadkar was hit by a barrage of criticism last night over his decision to leave senior female members of his entourage standing outside a male-only temple in Ethiopia where women are perceived to be unclean. Appalled politicians told of their shock and dismay that the Taoiseach took part in such a diplomatic gaffe that saw the women with him subjected to misogynistic exclusion. The people who were left outside that temple as he went inside included Ireland's ambassador to Ethiopia and the Taoiseach's aide-de-camp. I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on. Uh, Before we get knees deep into too much of the Brexit stuff though, 
I do want to touch on some of the, the commentary that's in some of today's papers uh, about that dreadful accident in Donegal a couple of days ago, the, the very, very tragic death uh, of Don Croke. I know that there's an awful lot across the papers today. I want to read you very briefly something that's been written on page one uh, of the Sunday Independent by Brendan O'Connor. Uh, her name was Dawn Croak. She has been called a tragic young mum, a beauty queen, a hero, and she was all of those things. But remember that her name was Dawn Croak, and that a scant consolation today for her family or her two young children or those who loved her, or for the community in which she was embedded and to whom she contributed so much, that Dawn Croak is a hero. But in times to come, uh, wherever they remember her name, their heroism will console them. Uh, Richie, anything that strikes you in all of the coverage about Dawn Croak's death today? Yeah, it's a nice piece um, uh, by Brendan O'Connor. Obviously, a very tragic incident, um, but uh, she's a hero. I mean, she 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 saved a, a child's life and put her own life at risk. Mm. And it seems that that instinctive reaction that she had when 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 the vehicle that that hit the child, I think I think it was a runaway vehicle, it just moved off by itself. Yeah. Um, that instinctive reaction is something that she carried through throughout her life and, and Brendan says that you know we sometimes give ourselves a hard time in Ireland and you know communities in, in rural Ireland sometimes feel isolated and things like that but he, he makes the point that we you know we are a decent people when it comes to it and, and incidents like that just just, just show a, a brilliant reaction yeah and it's it's tragic but just a, a supreme act of selflessness yes Grony anything yeah. that strikes you? I think when we we probably all have thought about what, what we might do in our, in our final moments what might go through our heads or things like that but for Don Croke to do what she did as something completely and utterly selfless in like a, a knee-jerk reaction there was no time to think and things like that it's, it says a lot about her as a, as a woman and as, as Brendan O'Connor says in the piece it won't offer too much consolation now um, her funeral I think is to be held tomorrow mm. um, and there's m- meant to be a, a thousands expected at that um, but it is um, an incredible incredible thing to do um, something so selfish like yeah, that. Absolutely. Bernard, anything that strikes you about the coverage today? Yeah, I think, I mean, your heart goes out to um, Dawn's family and colleagues and friends, the children that she taught at the school. It's going to be a really tough time for them. And it, uh, at the same time, it, it, you know, as Brendan uh, Connor says in his piece, it is an encouragement. I mean, what she did was what I guess we all hope we do in that situation. Uh, but, uh, you know, her instinct was to do the totally selfless thing and she paid the, the highest possible price. So, um, you know, our thoughts will be with everybody in Donegal tomorrow. Absolutely, the, the most uh, extreme sacrifice that anyone can offer. Our thoughts are with all of her family and friends and everyone who will be attending her funeral mass tomorrow morning. Uh, turning to the one subject which dominates all of the front pages, we'll talk a little bit about some of the chaos across the water in just a moment, but we will start uh, with the front page of the Sunday Business Post. Fianna Fáil attacking the government and claiming the country is not prepared for a no-deal Brexit. Uh, in the A, I remember just before Christmas the government published a fairly hefty memo of all of the contingency planning that it was looking at in the case of a no-deal, and it seemed at the time that this was, you know, the government wasn't saying this is all of our work, this is just a work in progress, but it seemed as if there was a lot in train at least. Uh, Fianna Fáil don't appear to be all that impressed. No, um, I suppose there, there's a second half of that kind of plan to be published uh, next week as well, so it's kind of an ongoing, a gradual um, uh active planning. Um, Boris Johnson said actually earlier this week that he praised the Irish government for its foresight and was probably ahead of the UK government in terms of its no-deal planning. Not Which, that that would be difficult. Considering he was the Foreign <laughs> Secretary, it's not much of a, of a, a praise for his own acumen really, is it? Uh, no, well, I mean, it, it was as much of a praise you're going to get from Boris Johnson I, I would say. Um, but uh, the, I think it was, I think it's kind of um, difficult to plan. The, this has been said all along. It's difficult to plan for something we don't know what we're getting. As I said in a lot of the papers today, we're so far along 
along the kind of Brexit timeline and we still aren't really sure what we're going to get and how do you plan for that. Mm. We know that there will probably be more checks between at ports and airports in Ireland and that kind of thing and that businesses will probably need some sort of help. But what can you do? You can only do, do so much up to a certain point. Um, Fianna Fáil attacking the government over no deal uh, planning, I suppose it makes sense considering that the conditions upon which the confidence of supply agreement is, is continuing is because of fears around Brexit. Yeah. And if they're not focusing on that, it's an easy kind of win or an easy target for Fianna Fáil to attack. Um, we'll see how prepared we are. I suppose the only we- real way we can tell whether we're prepared or not is when it happens mm. and what's what's left, what kind of tailbacks will be left at Dublin Port or Ross Lair. So there's all of that to look forward to in about 76 days' time. Uh, Bernard, it is nearly four weeks, though, since we saw that major memo from the government talking about all of its contingencies. I think that was the first time that they'd explicitly said in black and white that they were looking at extra capacity at the airports and seaports. And yet it's four weeks later and it appears that, according to the Business Post today, that they haven't even acquired a lot of the land that they're going to need to do that, which seems like it's leaving things to the last minute. Yeah, it does certainly have that air about it. I mean, I would say, first of all, in defence of the government, I think the handling of the issue politically with Brussels has been pretty deft over the last two and a half years, and they've they've handled the whole issue of where Ireland sits post-Brexit really extraordinarily well. But there is a question mark about preparations for um, possible hard Brexit. We don't know if it's going to be that, but it's looking kind of looking more like that uh, as, as the days go by. Mm. Uh, in Forza, we had a conference about 18 months ago looking at around the agricultural and food industry. We did the conference along with SIP2. We invited IBEC and business organisations and chambers were all involved. Uh, and we were outlining then the kinds of things that would need to be done around agriculture and customs and the border. Such as what? Pra- well, practical things like uh, having personnel in place, having procedures in place to deal with, uh, you know, a hard border that hadn't, hasn't existed for so long. Mm. Uh, and there hasn't, there's been some movement, but not a great deal of movement uh, to put those things in place. Again, I mean, what, um, I, I'm remind, reminded also of going back many years of the preparations for the me- millennium bug, mm. when a lot of uh, resources were put into avoiding potential catastrophes around uh, the, the computers and the, and the yeah. millennium. A lot of criticism at that time for making the preparations for something when we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of rock and a hard place stuff. Uh, I, I do. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the same argument turned on its head, really. I do wonder sometimes if, if Brexit turns out to be not as calamitous as we might fear because of all the planning that's gone into it, whether people will again think that it was a little bit like the Millennium Bug and say that, what were we all so panicked about? We told you everything was going to be okay. Well, I think all the engineers who worked on solving Richie. the Millennium Bug issue made the point afterwards that there was no issue because they spent so long working on yes. fixing it in the <laughs> yeah. first place. Uh, well, <laughs> on, on a similar note though, Richie, I mean, uh, again, this is Fianna Fáil attacking the government and you can argue that, you know, the role of an opposition party is to be constructive yeah. and to ensure the government's prepared for this. Uh, but this is something that it almost, it's very difficult to see this not through a partisan lens given that there's been so much hostility between the two parties over uh, the complaints of Lisa Chambers for example about how prepared we actually are. In, in a way I, I think it might be it, it kind of shows that there's nothing else for Fianna Fáil really to, 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 to have a go at Fianna Gael at given that they're propping them up in government. If they want to have a massive go at them on the housing crisis well you're supporting the policies. If you want to have a go at them over, over cost of living you're supporting the policies that aren't delivering. So Brexit is the one area and I suppose Michael Martin can kind of portray himself as kind of a, a little bit more of a, a statesman than, than Leo Varadkar in this regard yeah. and that he's been around longer he's more experienced negotiating and, and, and things like that but at, at the same time ultimately 
uh, Fianna Fáil does support the, the government's position and it's important that that's out there because there's a narrative taking hold in Britain at the moment where it's somehow they somehow are suggesting that Leo Varadkar is under pressure and you've got, you see BBC uh, political editors writing this that Leo Varadkar is, is under pressure think, you're, you're talking about the, the thread that Cathy Adler the Europe editor yeah, posted like yesterday she, and she mentioned that Leo Varadkar was weak at home t- just somehow and, and t- a lot of people took her, took her to task over yeah. that but again we do have a front page of a newspaper with the main opposition party keeping Leo Varadkar and his crew in power uh, criticising the government which yeah. does illustrate I mean, it's, it's certain well, though, I mean you probably have a, the civil service probably are uh, looking at lots of no deal things at the moment but they're not going to show their hand they're not going to like publish a big mad detailed plan because that's almost like you know you're wishing for it to happen like, mm. <laughs> I suppose but I mean how 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 do you prepare for a no deal as well that's pretty difficult um, so I mean everyone is hoping that it's not going to be a no deal Brexit um, and if it is I mean that there's a suggestion that there's a project fear and that there's I, I don't think that's true I, I, I think that there'll be utter chaos if it is a no deal Brexit Bernard? Yeah I was um, in, in another life I worked for, as an advisor to a minister in uh, energy and communications a couple mm. of years ago and what I can say was in that department before the referendum took place in the UK I was reading a paper about preparations for Brexit so uh, you know I'd have faith that the civil service has been on the case in terms of looking at options and uh, what needs to be done um, but you know that there is if the worst comes to the worst, there's going to have to be some very fast action. And, uh, and I guess it would be quite costly in some respects as well. Look, the timeline for that being that that was for Alex White and he was out of government. He was finally replaced in March 2016 and that was the month before the referendum. So even before the That's vote the had point. happened, there Absolutely. was time for it. Um, let's look a little bit over the water. Uh, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has just been on the BBC speaking to Andrew Marr. We'll hear from him in a couple of moments, but also on the Andrew Marr show <laughs> this morning, uh, the current Brexit secretary, Steve Barclay. Here's what he had to say about the vote coming up on Tuesday. We're working hard with colleagues, we're working hard with EU leaders, the Prime Minister has been speaking to them in terms of the specific concerns we've heard, particularly on the issue of the backstop. But if you lose that vote, and most people think you will, um, there will have to be another plan, Plan B. Do you know what it is and you're not telling me, or do you not know what it is? Well, it will be for the House to decide what it is able to support, and I suspect it will be Mm. uh, along the lines of this deal, because this is the deal that delivers on what people like me, Brexiteers like me, campaigned for, whether that's control of our immigration, putting an end to the vast sums of money, taking control of fishing and agriculture. So this delivers Mm. for Brexiteers, but does so in a way that respects the needs of the business community. Uh, Steve Barkley, the Brexit Secretary, speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC in the last hour. Uh, Grania, it sounds very much like it's still Plan A or bust. Uh, he, yeah, he said there a lot, something along the lines of this deal. It's this deal or nothing. I don't know what along the lines of this deal exactly means there and that it delivers for Brexiteers. I mean, what do Brexiteers want? I, I, I'd love they to hear what he thinks of our about. money, our borders and our laws, but don't this, they? This is at the crux of what the problem with Brexit is. What do Brexiteers want? They want to represent the people who voted for Brexit and their views and capitalise on that massive vote. And what did they want? What did those voters vote for? I don't think uh, the UK government, I don't think Brexiteers, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn knows exactly what was behind or what the kind of core kind um want was from voting to leave the European Union um, and how are they going to get a deal passed in the House of Commons when they don't know whether the British public will want it or not mm. because do you limit is worth limiting immigration for example worth not being in the sim- single market that's the kind of questions they need to ask is is um, putting more custom checks between Northern Ireland say and the rest of Great Britain or the rest of the UK um, worth 
having that kind of freedom, that customs and trade freedom to strike trade re- deals along the world. These are the kind of decisions they have to make and they don't know how the British public feels uh, about uh, them. Richie, your publication has uh, organs on the other side of the IRC as well. Do you really get any sense that there's an understanding in London or SW1 or Whitehall or anywhere else uh, that when Steve Barclay talks about something along the lines <laughs> of this deal, that the rest of Europe doesn't have any ap- appetite or appetite, <laughs> appetite to negotiate something that's along the lines uh, of I that know, it is and, and this we, deal. We had Boris Johnson in Ireland this week and he said, you know, the border, like, there has to be some kind of technical solutions. You're like, just, you know, yeah, what are they? Where, 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 what, what are your specific- Which he said we can work on during the implementation period, yeah, which only exists if we adopt the deal that he doesn't want. <laughs> Dan, Dan O'Brien is a very good piece. Um, if anyone is, is trying to get a, figure, a handle on this, I mean, I, I'm asked all the time, like, uh, what, what, where do you think Brexit will go? And the answer is, I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. I don't think anyone can say wh- where, where this thing is going. Dan O'Brien says when he was, he was in the UK for a couple of weeks and he said, nobody spoke to believe that the terms of the divorce uh, due to be voted on in Westminster on Tuesday in, in a meaningful vote mm. would be passed. But nor could anyone make a convincing case for how events in the coming weeks will unfold. The reality is that Britain is in the rare, if not unprecedented position for a mature democracy in that nobody is in control. Brexit has become a runaway train. And that, that for me, sums it up really well. If you look at the, the front pages of the UK papers, yeah. you know, r- plot to seize control from British PM, Labour yeah. set to trigger vote to top of May. Sunday Telegraph, Tories on the blink of imploding, yeah. uh, Sunday Times a very British coup, uh, The Observer, Labour set to trigger vote to topple May government. We'll talk about that in literally just a moment. Sunday, uh, Sunday Express, Express May Back my deal or face catastrophe. <laughs> uh, and the Mail on Sunday, Burkow's secret kill Brexit plot with Tory saboteur, which is that uh, he messed this, with This to me is one of the things. So the, what we should be discussing is the issues and the solutions and, and drilling down into, into the fine points to try and solve this. But in fact, what's going on in Britain is a big debate involving personalities. Did Burkow break the parliamentary rules? Uh, yes. What, what is, is Corbyn <laughs> trying, to, trying to, to shaft May and, mm. and, and get force an election? Where does he stand on Brexit? We don't really fully well know. And I mean, that's the element is this, is that there's, there's politics at play in Britain over what should be an issue where they're, 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 they're united, but they don't even know themselves what they want. And I read a piece during the week where basically someone was saying that, that the British cabinet just, just isn't up to it. They don't know, they can't even decide themselves what, what they want. So... Uh, any anyone who says that they know where this thing is going is is, is telling a lie. Well, let's talk. About I, I think though, sorry, sorry. Uh, sure. The Bertie point about pushing this to Bertie Hearn saying we need to push this out. Like, I know Bertie has his flaws and people criticise him and things, but you know he was a deal maker and he was a negotiator. And if he's saying, look, there isn't enough time, I think he he says the the idea that there is enough time is poppycock, which is great Bertieism. Mm. Um, but also John Major is is saying the same thing. Now there's two two experienced politicians who knew how to negotiate a deal, John Major and Bertie Hearn, and they're saying, hang hang on a second on this. Yeah, well, I suppose that the, the point of the, the the opposite side to that is that they are politicians, but they are now dealing with the uh, the practice or the principle rather than the practice. And when you're not necessarily in the cut and thrust of daily politics, you might lose just how difficult it is to sell some of those ideas. Uh, we mentioned the observer there, Labour set to trigger vote to topple May government. Uh, that was something that the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was asked about. He was also on the Andrew Marr show, uh, just finishing up in the last few minutes. Now, the panel were listening to him speaking so that you don't have to. Uh, here he is speaking about the story that's in the Sunday Telegraph, the attempts to topple the government. Uh, this relates to the Dominic Grieve amendment on which the government was defeated last week. That means that if Theresa May is defeated in her parliamentary vote on her Plan A this coming Tuesday, she will have to bring back her plans for Plan B uh, within three working days. In other words, by next Friday. Here's Jeremy Corbyn discussing that. 
The Dominic Grieve Amendment only applies to the uh, this process. It doesn't apply in general to everything else in Parliament. And the, car- the passing of his amendment does mean there will be a change in the process in Parliament if this deal is voted down so on very, Tuesday. But every, sorry, very everything depends on Tuesday's vote. Sure. Well, very, very briefly, would you welcome... Do you think this means that Parliament can actually stop Article 50 being triggered? Yes or no? I, I think Parliament may well want to do that, but let's... Let's see what happens. But the crucial thing, Andrew, is Tuesday, and then, if this government can't control Parliament, it's time to move on and have a general election so the people can decide who they want to be their government. I kind of thought you'd say that, Jeremy Corbyn. Thanks. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC within the last hour or so. Um, it's become very fashionable, Bernard, to, to bash Jeremy Corbyn and suggest that, the, you know, that this would all be a little bit more clear-cut, at least if there was a clear principled opposition in the UK. But time and time again, it comes back to the fact that Jeremy Corbyn and his party don't have clearly agreed position either. And he's talking there about, you know, Parliament taking control from the government if the government can't get its house in order. There's nothing to suggest that Parliament really knows what it wants either. So it's only really going to be taking control from a fractured cabinet into an entirely fractured house, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is the problem is that there's just great division over this issue. The country's divided. It voted pretty much 50-50 on the issue uh, two two years ago. Uh, the cabinet's divided. The government's divided. Labour's divided. The Conservative Party is divided. And the Parliament's divided. And the only thing that seems to be bringing people together is the fear of no Brexit. Uh, but I was, I was reading a piece by uh, Stephen Bush in the New Statesman in the week where he said, that's all fine, but if uh, uh, ad- identify what you don't want is not going to prevent it from happening unless you vote in favour of something that will prevent it. And at this stage, nobody's nobody's talking about that. So I, uh, I'm not a big fan of Jeremy Corbyn, but I have some sympathy with his position. I think, mm. uh, I mean, he's a Brexiteer, I believe, but he, he believes politically that if he obstructs Brexit, he'll be punished, uh, and if he facilitates Brexit, he'll be punished. And I think that's the situation for most politicians, mm. and that, that's what make, makes me most fearful of this, uh, because it's hard to see politicians voting for something that they think will harm them or their party politically, uh, and I think that that, that may be, uh, the, you know, in the end of the day, uh, the, the, the mechanism that leads us to the catastrophe of no, uh, of no deal. Doesn't it say a huge amount that Britain is currently led by someone who was a Remainer who is now dead set on delivering leave, <laughs> But that if she loses, and possibly if there's a change of government, that it's going to be taken over by a Lever who actually advocated for Remain and doesn't really know yeah, then can, what can, formula of Lever. Yeah, he wants. can I just say, just make one other point on the just on the Brexit thing more generally? Uh, Theresa May's writing today in the Express, mm. uh, and again, uh, I mean, I just want to say something about the language because yeah, she uses back my deal or face y- catastrophe exactly, and she talks about a, if you don't back the deal, it would be a betrayal of the of people's trust in democracy. And we're also reading this morning. Grania was making a point before we came on this morning. We're reading about collusion, coups, plots, betrayals. And this kind of language really is not going to help the situation at all. Uh, it repeat, you know, it's a divided country. Uh, there needs to be some, some cool heads. I believe that there's some zealots in this debate at the fringes of both sides, but most politicians are trying to work their way through this. Uh, they're trying to do the best for the country. And I think people, in, people will be well advised in the UK, including for the Prime Minister down, to tone down the language a little bit and, and, and try to, to find solutions to this problem. Well, speaking of some choice language. Uh, along with Steve Barkley and Jeremy Corbyn, we've heard the insightful views of our guests and some of what's been written in the papers. Uh, we will leave the final word for now on Brexit uh, to the unlikely oracle of all of this, the Cardiff City Manager, Neil Warnock, speaking yesterday about Brexit. I think once the country knows what they're doing and uh, we get a, an agreement and move on, I think it'd be straightforward, me. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, you know, there's more talk about it, you know. I don't know why politicians don't do what the country wanted. If I'm honest, you know, they had a referendum, 
you know, and now we see different politicians and all everybody else trying to put the foot in it with Theresa instead of getting behind her, you know. Why did we have a referendum in the first place? You know, I can't wait to get out of them, if I'm honest. I think we'll be far better out of the thing, mate, in every aspect. And to hell with the rest of the world, eh? Football-wise as well, yeah. Absolutely. Is that the choice language you meant, Bernard? I don't think he's going to be in Europe anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, Neil Warnock there, the manager of Cardiff City uh, squad. Spirit, that has, isn't uh, it? Yeah. Nationalities from 11 different countries in their squad, a club that's owned by a Malaysian, a club whose second highest goal scorer this year, who is also their most prolific man for assists, is a man called Victor Camarasa, whose employment status as a Spaniard could be completely unknown in 10 weeks' time. So, uh, good luck to you, Neil. We'll all be watching. Uh, more on Brexit and the Premier League to come. Uh, more from our panel in just a moment. On the record. On News Talk. Welcome back. It is coming up to half past 11 on Sunday morning, the uh, 13th of January. Where does the year go? Gavin Riley of Virgin Media News with you this morning for On the Record on News Talk. Uh, get in touch with us. 53106 is the text number at a cost of 30 cents. Also on Twitter at News Talk FM or at Gav Riley. Going through this morning's papers with our panel, Groin in the A, reported with the journal.ie, Richie Oakley, editor of the Ireland edition of The Times, and Bernard Harbour, director of communications with the Forza Trade Union. Uh, Bernard, I'm going to come to you about one of the other issues that's dominating some mm. of the papers today the, the nurses' strike, the forthcoming industrial. Industrial action by the INMO. Um, there's a very lengthy piece uh, on page nine of the Sunday Business Post today by Susan Mitchell, who is trying to put the general state of the Irish health sector and the uh, pay for nurses and the likes into context with um, other countries in the EU and the OECD. And it seems effectively that Irish nurses don't come out all that badly, that they do have uh, a relatively comfortable level of, of income compared to what other countries get, that it's been increased a reasonable amount in recent years. Uh, and it seems to be echoing a sentiment that's across a lot of the papers today, that the 12% pay claim being put in by the members of the INMO, which I appreciate you don't represent, but you are from the trade union movement, um, that it is effectively perhaps a bridge more than mo- than most people looking at the metrics might be able to offer them. Yeah, I think the the nurses union, the INMO, came out very strongly this week. Uh, they made their announcement on Tuesday and there was some, you know, some well-argued op-eds in the papers earlier in the week and some good case studies that made the point from, you know, the perspective of ordinary nurses. I'd say that they may be a little disturbed about the coverage this weekend because we're still over two weeks away from the strike on the 30th, uh, but already the tone of the coverage has turned onto the politics of it, the economics of it. Uh, there was the, the piece that you referred to today, Susan Mitchell's piece, very strong piece in the mm. Business Post, Shane Coleman yesterday in the Times Island edition, uh, Willie Keeley today in the Sunday Independent. Uh, and they're, the, 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 they're not particularly well, they're supported of the nurses, but they're, they're questioning the, the idea of the pay increase. So I think that uh, with two weeks to go, we could see the, the coverage of this quite negative for nurses if that trend continues. Yeah, one, one line that's in Susan Mitchell's piece, and that she mentions a, a nurse, Joanna Hickey, who posted her uh, salary slip online in the last couple of weeks, and it shows that she netted uh, 1,120 euro for two weeks' work, which is 36 hours a week, which works out effectively at, at about 30,000 euro plus change a year. Uh, she said that this was a friendly reminder of what a specialist nurse with postgraduate diplomas was paid and there was an outpouring of so- support on social media. Uh, but Susan Mitchell writes it's clear that others can and do earn more. The average remuneration paid to nurses was €57,000 in 2018 according to the HSE and that includes overtime as well as premium payments and allowances. Uh, when you look at an, an average uh, figure like that of, of €57,000 €58,000, um, a lot of people who might of course support the idea of nurses in principle and they completely appreciate the burden that nurses 
services carry in our overstretched emergency departments. But they might again think that the, the the scale of what is being sought by the INMO, particularly when there are other public unions who want similarly, uh, is simply more than, than anyone ought to be able to afford. Yeah, I think that I mean obviously people showing pay slips tells the story of a particular individual. It depends on your tax position and so on and so forth. Uh, similarly, the international comparisons that we read, uh, we don't always know what's being compared. <coughs> it's, it's quite difficult to make comparisons between different pay systems and different health services in this case. Uh, so, you know, you, you need to read that with care. And that's why I think Susan Mitchell's article, in some respects, uh, strictly for the enthusiasts, but very good in terms of the data that it puts forward. Uh, and, and I think, Gavin, I mean, to be blunt, your, your point is right. I mean, people, uh, it, it, that's a, the, the average is above the average income. So more people will be earning less than the nurse uh, who's, mm. who's being uh, talked about than will be earning more. So that, that may well affect the sympathy that people have for the, for the nurse's case. Having said that, nurses are very highly, you know, held in very high esteem in Ireland, quite rightly. I've had a lot of treatment myself over the last couple of years and couldn't say uh, enough good things about nurses and the other staff in the health service that I encountered. So that's all to be played for. But I think my earlier point is that the tone of coverage uh, already, I think, is moving away from the nurses. And I think that would be a concern if I was in the INMO. Accordingly, does it surprise you that there is so much... Uh you, uh, you, I suppose you could call it criticism, really, in the Sunday papers today of the INMO strike coming up in a couple of weeks, given that they would generally command so much public sympathy. I think that, well, I think there is a lot of um, sympathy for the nurses if you compare it to, say, um, past threaten, threats of strike from teachers, for example, um, because uh, it is a difficult job. And I think that's kind of the, the, the main point I would make there. Obviously, there isn't a lot of money to move around. Pascal Donoghue um, was criticised uh, earlier this year for being a bit uh, not spend or not saving enough um, in mm-hmm. the country and when you put the nurses strike in the context of that how much money do we have to to increase pay uh, for people are here but when the Sunday Independent piece putting a price on the prices work of nurses that's the kind of crux of it when you say the average pay is 56,000 or whatever for a nurse mm. think about the job that they do it's a kind of emotionally taxing mentally taxing there's a lot of stress involved it's people who are very ill dealing with death on a daily basis that kind of thing you can't really compare that to other jobs and say well they're they're being paid far more it's a, it's a much more stress uh, stressful job yeah. and they're paid accordingly to that and that's the kind of thing how do we va- i mean this is a de- the debate it opens how do we value nurses and people who are, work in the healthcare system in our society the reason why nurses are going abroad is because they value them more in say australia for example mm. because they pay them more the conditions are better because of that and they're able to do their job better they feel um i know from interviewing a couple of people that they feel that the reason they became nurses they feel they can do that job better in places like australia because there's more room for them for that kind of holistic approach and to talk to the patient so when we say um, nurses are the average is quite high you know comparatively that's not really the issue here it's like how do we value nurses in society and how do we pay them accordingly yeah and just just a note about how those figures are skewed as well susan mitchell does note that at the very top end of the scale somebody appointed as a hospital group director of nursing uh, later this year will be paid ninety eight thousand euro uh, but a newly qualified nurse will have an effective starting salary uh, of thirty one thousand um, agnes has been on touch on twitter to say that uh, nurses work 39 hours per week not 36 uh, and i do also want to read uh, before i come to you richie just the thread that was posted a few days ago by a nurse called maylena uh, this won't take too long she says i'm a nurse i once sat down with an old woman while a consultant told her that she had a large suspicious mass on her kidney i robbed desserts from another ward and i made her and her daughter tea and i closed the curtain around their bed while they cried together i once bought a dressing gown socks and pajamas for an elderly man with end-stage dementia who was admitted from a nursing home he had no family and i couldn't stand to see him day in and day out with only a hospital gown to his name 
I sat and cried with a young mother dying from cancer. She had lost her hair and she was skin and bone. Her daughter wouldn't visit her. She told me her little girl was terrified of her and wanted her old mother back. My heart broke that night and all I could do was hold her. I once brought bottles of Club Orange for a young man dying of an age-related illness. He took a long time to die. It was very upsetting seeing him towards the end. He died on Christmas Eve and I washed him and laid him out for his family. I've had a woman in the throes of addiction threaten to murder my children. I've had a man fall on top of me while I was heavily pregnant. I've had to dodge kicks, slaps and scrapes. I've dealt with abuse from visitors. I've fought with doctors on behalf of my patients. All nurses have stories like this. We all go home sore and sad and tired. We all do our best, but we've had enough. We need more nurses. We need better paying conditions. Please listen to us when we say we need help. Please stand with us. Uh, when you see the case made like that, Richie, it's very difficult not to have your heartstrings pulled, which perhaps is really the, the, the card that nurses are better qualified to play more than anyone else. Yeah, I mean, like, there is no doubt. Like My sister's a nurse. Uh, I have another sister who, who's a teacher. So, I mean, the public service, there, there's no doubt that there are people doing exceptional work in, in, in nursing, in teaching, uh, in the Gardaí, for example. And I think when, when, when the guards look for, for their pay increase um, a while ago, you know, they made the case that they're, they're they're subjected to dangerous conditions and difficult conditions, and there's there's absolutely no doubt that the work these guys do is, is exceptional. I think the people though will will remember back to, to the public sector pay bill that was built up during the Celtic Tiger years, mm. which was completely unsustainable. And, and when the crash happened, which of course was 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 mainly caused by reckless lending and the banks and, and, and crazy stuff going on in that in that area. Um, the government was left with a massive pay bill that that couldn't be paid because it had got simply out, out of control. And I think people will, will sympathise with the government in, in some way on that while at the same time understanding where the nurses are, are coming from. But when the guards, for example, got their increase of 50 million a year the last time, the public sector workers came back and they, they managed to get another 120. That was another 170. This will cost another 300 million to do with the nurses. And if you think they're the only ones that are going to come back to the government looking for pay increases on the back of this, yeah, considering that's not the, the case. Teachers unions have voted this, down their deal as well. A, this is at a time when, when the, there is a recovery happening and, and, and people are expecting to see their pay packet increase but it's also at a time when the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is slamming the government's spending spending policies um, so you know there, there's sometimes everyone wants stuff and the money just is not is not there mm. and, and that's that's politics and that's that's the re, that's the reality that's the point Shane Cole was, was making in, in yeah he wrote a column in your title yesterday yeah, in our paper yesterday. So that, 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 that's the thing. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting today is this living costs are increasing. Yeah, this the front page is independent. So, so this is the thing. So if it was a situation where you hadn't, you hadn't crazy rents in the country, where you didn't have to save um, the, 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 the income of a small third world country before you can get a mortgage, mm. um, th- these issues wouldn't be as, as crucial as they are now and people wouldn't feel... Um, as abandoned, and th- there's a lesson for that in the government because they don't really look at these living costs. It's things like insurance. It's things like um, electricity, right? And if you take for insurance, for example, there's been recommendations on how to cut the cost of insurance. Sitting with the government, one of the recommendations was set up a fraud unit in the Gardaí. Oh. Hasn't been done. So the government need you, you need to tackle the cost of living in order to 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 to, to make things fairer for people, and that that that's one way of 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 reducing pressures on constant demand for more money. Because obviously, more money affects competitiveness, mm. and the last thing an island economy like ours needs is to be uncompetitive. Uh, Bernard, it strikes me though that a lot of the difficulty that that Richie has articulated there, how you know, if if one uh, sector of the public service comes looking for more money, and no matter how justified it might appear, that then other sectors will come looking for an extra bit for themselves, uh, and this. Re- 
goes back to, and it has been the, the practice for time immemorial, to try and have a, a single, by and large, one-size-fits-all approach to everyone who works in the public mm-hmm. service, all 300-odd thousand people. Um, but perhaps does there, there come a time where, in a sector which is clearly under as much pressure as health is, and given that we all know how much is spent on agency nurses, for example, which could, perhaps could be better spent hiring other nurses who work directly for the HSE, who could shoulder the same workload for, for less money, um, that when you look at individual sectors like that, that perhaps it doesn't make as much sense to treat all 300,000 people in the same way and that you do have to have a a more discrete sector-specific treatment for each one. Well, I think Richie's point about context is really an important one. So, for example, when you talk about the pressures on nursing, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that there's far too much emphasis on hospitals in our health service and not enough on care in the community and primary care, where a lot of that, you know, a lot of the pressure on the system should be uh, being removed. And the point Richie makes about pay and cost of living is also an important one and one that if I was in government, I'd be very concerned about. Uh, A lot of this is driven by the cost of housing. Uh, People just can't you know manage to rent or buy because it's so expensive and that's not what you need to be driving your pay policy so i think those things need to be addressed outside of the pay system but what, what uh, about the, the idea of, of having sector specific ideas that you just can't have a one-size-fits-all for three hundred thousand people well the one-size-fits-all is i mean it's it's an organized way of dealing with uh, with pay policy for uh, uh, in the public service just as you would in in a large organization and i think the you know the um the, the the problem here is that the nurses are saying we're a different case, we're a special case. Now I'm not uh, I'm not having a go at the nurses. The guards did the same a couple of years ago, uh, and I can I can I could list for you now uh, the teachers are saying the same. I mm. could list list for you now dozens of other groups that could say this is our situation which should be addressed. So the point of having a, a national pay agreement means that everybody's being uh, treated in the same way, not necessarily getting the same outcomes in terms of pay, but are being treated in the same way. Uh, virtually every union, including the INMO, accepted the pay agreement that we're in now. Uh, and the, the, the problem is that if, if, if any groups seem to be treated more favorably than others within that context, it will inevitably lead others to say, well, hold on a second, I've got a problem too. Can't we address that? And if I can talk just one specific point. Briefly, please. Yeah, uh, yeah well, sorry, but I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, a number of other groups ident- had uh, identified recruitment and retention problems were identified by the Public Service Pay Commission, many of them with more acute recruitment and retention problems. Mm. Now, this is the fundamental case being put forward by the INMO, uh, and if the nurses were to be treated in a particular way, there are lots of, of other groups that can make exactly uh, the same case or an even more convincing case on the issue of recruitment and retention. Uh, very uh, interesting times. There's a lot of reports in today's papers about how the HSC and the nurses groups are still in some sort of contact to try and avert that strike in two weeks' time. No doubt we'll hear uh, a little bit more about it. Uh, you're listening to On the Record on News Talk. It's Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News with you this morning. Uh, back with more from our newspaper panel in just a moment. On the Record on News Talk. Uh, welcome back. It is 14 minutes to 12 on Sunday afternoon. It's Gavin, not afternoon, at the, by definition, because it's before 12. It's not afternoon. You'd know there hasn't been enough caffeine in this building. Uh, it's 14 minutes to 12 this morning, uh, Sunday morning. It's Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News with you until one o'clock this afternoon and on the record. Uh, 53106 is the number for your comments via text. That'll cost you uh, 30 cents. Uh, still here looking through the papers with Grony the A from the journal.ie, Richie Oakley of the Times Ireland and Bernard Harbour of the Forza Trade Union. Uh, there is a lot written in today's papers, Grony, uh, about the uh, the malaise which exploded this week uh, around the Abbey Theatre and the funding of the arts and the general principle that if the Abbey Theatre is meant to be publicly funded that it shouldn't really be uh, filling the stage with uh, you know touring productions that it should be 
Irish theatre for Irish actors, for Irish jobs, for Irish people. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting debate because there's a couple of, um, as you said, a couple, there's an editorial in the Sunday Business Post where it asks the kind of pertinent question, what is an Irish production? Does Martin McDonagh's um, play count when he's, mm. um, he has two Irish parents, was born, you know, raised yeah. in the UK? What, what is, is an, nationality? What is an Irish actor? But what, what do we want from our national theatre? I think a lot of people don't even realise that the, what the Abbey Theatre is, that it's a national theatre, that it has a kind of a, a responsibility to to provide a certain, you know, showcase and cultivate um, the Irish theatre scene. And it's also a historic kind of uh, building as well. Um, I don't think people feel like it's theirs or they own it when it should do that. Mm. And then there needs to be a kind of discussion about how to go about that. There's a lot of behind behind the scenes. I mean, I think as well with, uh, because they're actors um, and there's kind of like a lot of, drama naturally associated with that Mm. there's a tendency to kind of think is there much to this but I think there is a debate to be had like are, you know, does your mother or uh, your father go to the Abbey Theatre and feel like it's their theatre? If they do, what do they want to see at it? That kind of thing. Should tickets be um, subsidised and how, or should more money go towards um, mm. bringing in more, more writers or more uh, productions and that kind of thing? There's a really interesting, it forms part of a wider discussion about how we fund the arts. Because I always go refer back to this scene from Yes Minister um, where they talk about funding an opera house or, or subsidising an opera house um, and tickets for that versus funding the local football club because there's it's obviously massively popular mm. and people will go to the football matches versus who goes to the opera and who goes to the theatre. And I think there, there needs to be kind of a, a, a discussion similar to that um, in Ireland about how not just uh, should we fund the arts, that's not the question, I think most people would agree with that, but how we should fund it and what we mm. expect from different... Um, um, places like the Abbey Theatre yeah. when we do subsidise them or, g- or give them massive it's, it's an interesting point actually that a lot of people might not realise exactly what the, the function of the Abbey Theatre as distinct from other theatres is supposed to be. Um, Richie though, the, nearly 300 signatories or over 300 signatories to this letter um, all complaining about yeah. the, the, the number of touring productions which are squeezing out the work for, for Irish uh, people involved in the theatre scene. Um, it is perhaps easy to just write it off as being sour grapes because these people aren't getting the work. Some of them by the way no, who are not yeah. resident in Ireland. Yeah, no, uh, John Burns a good piece in, in in the Sunday Times and he makes the point the best drama at the Abbey is often off stage I, I think they could solve this by just getting someone to write a script about this entire incident the 300 actors could play themselves and the audience could sit there watching <laughs> them stage it, watching though? them negotiate <laughs> and, and so, so, sign the letter and uh, that, that could run for three years and it could solve the entire thing um, no I mean th- there's two new d- co-directors there and um, they have a different model of doing things there are fewer Abbey owned productions shorter runs more co-productions more bought in shows uh, and obviously they're, they're, they've used their contacts through the, the National Theatre in, mm. in Scotland because obviously if you've worked with something and you, and you know it works, you know, you, know what what you know what's popular and so um, on. But I think the answer now is like obviously that hasn't led to a lot of Irish actors getting work and if, if the National Theatre is funded um, by the Irish taxpayer then surely and you want to support Irish arts then surely a way to do that would be to uh, improve improve the number of you know increase the number of Irish actors on the stage mm. and, and do productions that at the same time could, could be reasonably commercial success yeah. um, that, that people want to watch. So it, it doesn't sound like it's a, a very difficult thing to, to resolve um, but it it sounds like it's been simmering in the background and maybe the, 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 the Abbey hasn't kind of picked up on it. Yeah. Uh, it it's just an extraordinary stage for it to, to get to but it does sound like something that could be resolved through. I mean the, the, they had the, the issue before about not enough um, 
productions for women mm. uh, being put on and they, ha- they held a kind of a public forum and, and yes, resolved that. Yeah. I, I wonder could a similar mechanism be, well, be used here? It, it, it is interesting though that the uh, that so many people have put their, their letters to this or their names to this Bernard particularly because given that perhaps if, if things don't necessarily change in the Abbey or if the Abbey decides to continue along the, the lines that it has uh, those people might effectively find themselves as persona non grata and not be able to get work through the theatre anymore. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Grania's point is a really important one, which is that it's about whether you fund the, the arts and how you fund them. And I think that the one thing that I would say, and I should say I'm not expert at this, mm. but one function of the theatre, the National Theatre, I, as I understand it, should be to encourage Irish writing, play, play, plays being written by uh, people in Ireland about this, about Ireland. And I think that that's really important and it would be, uh, I'd be sorry to see that lost if that's the danger. I think 300 signatures is a lot of signatures. It's hard to ignore. Mm. It strikes me that, you know, one of the issues here is a kind of good old fashioned outsourcing of work, you know, work that uh, previous, pre- previously Guys, women were being hired directly. Now this is happening through uh, third parties at uh, at lower wages. So I think that's part of the issue as well. Uh, that's not unique to the theatre. That's something that's happening across the economy. Yeah, a certain amount of public funding being withheld from the Abbey as well until they're able to uh, assure the Arts Council of their their mission. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that. Uh, one more story before I let you go. At the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday today, fury as Leo leaves his unclean women out. Again, I should stress, unclean is the headlines word, and it's in inverted commas. Uh, this is Leo Varadkar who was hit by a barrage of criticism after he left senior female members of his entourage standing outside a male-only temple in Ethiopia where women are perceived to be unclean. He effectively went into uh, a local mission while he was there, uh, entered a temple with the men in his group, leaving five senior women members of his party standing outside waiting for him in 30 degree heat for up to half an hour, included among those and, and in case people think that this is just women who are you know, in his company, they include his aide-de-camp, Caroline Burke, and Ireland's ambassador to Ethiopia, Sonia Highland. Grani, it strikes me that you know whatever about the the optics of it leaving an ambassador outside while the Prime Minister comes inside with you. That's bad form, isn't it? And, and, and I'd wonder, um, obviously, Leo Varadkar, when he was uh, became Taoiseach, he was praised as being a, a young and a modern Taoiseach, as, that, as the book describes him as. But I wonder if this is, is, is kind of an, an an age thing where he didn't didn't quite, quite feel like um, he could make a stand and, mm. and literally make a stand and stand outside the, the temple and refuse mm. the kind of the entry in. Yeah. Or, and he didn't quite, uh, it was kind of an inexperienced thing where he didn't quite realise what he was doing when he did walk in but Richie knowing, that same he, Richie knowing that he couldn't refuse it should he have gone in at all yeah it sounds to me like a, like a planning error here like this should never mm-hmm. have been on the the itinerary I, I, like it, it doesn't make sense that, that, that you, you would you put your, your, your like you, if he was in America say and there was an all all male golf club or an all male all male organisation mm. it's unlikely he, he would address that and I think in, in, in this circumstance I mean obviously other countries have their own religions etc etc but um, you, you, you just sidestep stuff like this uh, Bernard where do you strike the balance if you're asked to go somewhere there and you're trying to respect the customs of the country that you're visiting but they are broadly speaking offensive or unacceptable to the customs of your home country which side do you fall down on well Richie's right you just avoid the, 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 avoid the occasion of sin as it were I mean if this was on the itinerary uh, it's hard to see how, you know, the question wasn't asked about how this was going to be handled mm. and where the women on the uh, party were going to be standing. Uh, and really, it shouldn't have been scheduled. You could 
you could have met representatives of the church at a place that wasn't the church, which mm. wasn't men only. Uh, so it looks to me like a, like a big blunder. Clearly, you have to respect people's religions and local customs when you're abroad. Indeed, you should do it when you're at home. Uh, I've uh, friends of mine who've had to cover their heads when they've been in uh, Muslim countries representing Ireland. That's all well and good, but you do, but you shouldn't be scheduling uh, the Taoiseach to be going to a, ma- a male-only uh, venue, whether it's religious or anything else, yeah, it, it seems to me. It's interesting that the piece in the Mail on Sunday today quotes some of the women who were stood outside and they said, make the most of it, lads, you won't have it long. Uh, let us know what you think on that. We're on Twitter at Newstalk FM, or you can text us at 53106. Uh, that's all we've got time for for the paper panel today. So my thanks to Grony the Egg, reporter with the Journal.ie, Richie Oakley, editor of the Ireland edition of The Times, and Bernard Harbour, director of communications at the Forza Trade Union. You're all very welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, more from the show in just a few minutes. On the record. On, the record. on Newstalk.